Hello and welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. Our guest today is Dr Murray Cook, who's Stirling's borough archaeologist and the author of Digging into Stirling's Past, his guide to the history of Stirling and its surrounding area, going back to ancient times all the way up until recent history. Murray, how are you doing? Ah, absolutely fine, Tom. Yes, pleasure to be here. It's great to see you. Archaeology is a subject that has intrigued people for many, many years, and I think it's fair to say that most people have an interest in history and where we came from. What do you think it is about Stirling particularly that attracts people's attention? Well, I think it's it's this authenticity. Um, it's all still there. You know, you've got this big castle on the hill, you've got gravestones covered in musket ball impacts, you've got a city wall built to stop Henry VIII coming to steal Mary Queen of Scots away. It's all there, it's all on the streets. That's combined with Wallace, with Bruce, with those battles, and with that grand landscape vista to our north. You know, the Ockles, the views to Ben Lomond, to Ben Leddy. Really, Stirling's got it all. And I think it's fair to say too, one of the things that has attracted so many people to Stirling over the years has been the fact that there is layer upon layer of history here. Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, it's it's to do with the geography. If you wish to go north, if you wish to come south, if you wish to stop someone coming north or south, you do it at Stirling. And it's a central military uh, fact from the Romans to the Jacobites in 46. Everybody comes through Stirling. And the level of blood shed and treasure lost to control this tiny wee place is immense. I mean, one of the things that occurred to me when reading your book was the sheer number of major historical figures who've had a connection with Stirling or have played some part in its history at some point. Oh, yes. I mean, they're all there. You, you know, Mary, Queen of Scots, James IV, James V, William Wallace, Edward I, Edward II, Robert Burns, Queen Victoria... Just layer upon layer of individuals, layer upon layer of history, layer upon layer of battles, of events, all of which are actually of immense importance to Scotland, to Scotland's history, to Scotland's place in Britain. I mean, it would be fair to say without Stirling's geography, there is probably no independent Scotland to form the union with England to create Great Britain. We'd simply be another province of England. Now, one of the things that uh, occurs to me, certainly, has been that there are many, many unusual historical tales. I mean, we know about the battles, we know about the major significant events, but your book brings to light so many unexpected facts. Well, I think one of the things for me is there are any number of very good historical accounts of Stirling, of Stirling's place in Scotland, of its geography, of its architecture, but they tend to be a bit dry. So for me, the fun about Stirling is to contrast a wall that's built for Henry VIII with the world's oldest football, with Scotland's first uh, research into flight, with a story about going swimming somewhere with a nice cup of coffee and a great whiskey and a great steak pie. All these things are, are true, but they bring it down to a human level and it's about that visceral contact that the, the visitor has wandering around Stirling, where all those other people have been before. And that's one of the things that really had intrigued me, was the fact that not only do you focus on Stirling, the ancient city, but you also look at a number of the surrounding towns and areas as well. It's really just places I like to go with my daughters. 
<laughs> you know, we like to go places, we like to go for walks, we like to go swimming. And actually, these places, they're all within 12 to 15 miles of Stirling. So it's a 20-minute drive at absolute most, a good cycle. Most of it's flat, except, of course, when you, you start going up into the hills. But it's all there, and it's all so, it's so little known. I mean, it just feels a shame that people don't know about these places. And that's one of the things that had, I must say I found most fascinating was the fact that you look at areas of immense natural beauty in this area and then you bring up things like, for instance, the Atlantic Wall Recreation and the historical significance of, of that. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's amazing. There is this incredible contrast. So um, the Atlantic Wall Replica is built from plans stolen from occupied Europe. Hitler uses slave labour to build a massive series of uh, defences along Europe's uh, coastal uh, uh, fringe. And in order to work out how to break through these, the Allies build replicas of them. The, the biggest and best preserved of them is in Sheriff Muir. Fantastic area. It was top secret. If any of us had wandered there during the 1940s, we would have been arrested and held in prison, suspected of being a German spy. So we have... This incredible, uh, very poignant training ground, military top secret military research ground that was used by troops who were going to storm uh, the beaches of Normandy. The thing is that in the area, all of these things are fascinating. So all the battles are fascinating, but they're fascinating and important in a Scottish level or a British level. But D-Day, D-Day is the start of the end of the Nazis. And I would argue that D-Day is basically the most important event of world history. Um, it's when the most evil force in the world was finally beginning to be put back in its box. The end of the Nazis. And it started at Sheriff Muir. It's amazing. And looking back at more ancient history, or certainly heading more towards the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, um, you talk at some length about uh, Stirling Castle, about King's Park and the King's Knot. Do you feel it's fair to say that we're very fortunate here in Stirling to have a place where people can, in a sense, play their own part in history? They can come and visit these things that have been, uh, in many ways, uh, kept in such excellent condition? Oh, definitely. One of the the, the, the strength of Stirling is its weakness. It's, it's an odd thing. Basically, Stirling was one of the most important places in Scotland. It was, for many periods, the de facto capital. It was a favourite of the Stuart kings and queens. They invested here, they played here, they slept here, they killed each other here, they plotted here. All these things happened in Stirling. And then, on the Union of the Crowns, 1603, Stirling goes from being an important place in Scotland to a regional backwater in Britain. So the medieval palaces, the medieval gardens, the rich history is all left and it's never improved upon, it's never changed, it's never altered and it's all still there. Of course the difficulty with that is it came with a cost to the people in Stirling because medieval palaces have medieval sewerage and medieval drainage and medieval water supplies so that at the end of the 19th century Stirling has the lowest life expectancy of any city and the highest infant mortality rate of any Scottish city because of these cramped medieval conditions with a population that is too big for the footprint of the buildings. 
And that's one thing that really fascinated me about your book and something I really enjoyed reading was that while you cover areas that people might expect, like the, the Wallace Monument and Stirling Castle, you also look at places like Mars Walk and the Valley Cemetery, which are areas of, of great historical significance, but yet perhaps might not be known to people outside of the local area. Well, that, that, that is the key. Everybody, everybody that comes to Stirling tends to do uh, three things. The, the, the Battle of Bannockburn, the castle, and the Wallace Monument. Um, so, but there's so much more in Stirling. There's so much more to see, both for visitors, um, but also, I think, for locals. who there's a, Very few people know there's a memorial to Thomas Young Moyes, an engineer who went down on the Titanic in the Valley Cemetery. That's an incredible story, and very few locals know that, let alone... Um, People from outside Stirling, very few people in Stirling know that Britain's last beheading took place in Broad Street. Uh, the radical protesters Baird and Hardy, who were really just fighting for uh, workers' rights, 1820, September 1820, the last beheading. And of course the axe is on display in the Smith Museum. And that's an interesting point actually, because you do mention throughout your book a number of, of interesting artefacts that tie us here in the present directly to Stirling's rich history, and so many of these artefacts are, are on display now for people to view publicly. Absolutely. I mean, stories are great, but they are um, history can be can be tended to be viewed as the acts of great men and great women, and these are to a certain extent distant from us. But an object, a knife, an axe, the world's oldest football, the world's oldest curling stone, these are very tangible objects that directly connect us to our shared past. And actually the, the glory of Stirling in its past when it was an absolutely incredible place. It's still beautiful. It's just a small Scottish town, although clearly, legally, it's a city. And on the subject of the world's oldest football, it's one of... Stirling's most famous artefacts, and yet perhaps one that might not be particularly well known to people outside of Scotland. So would you like to say a bit more about it? Uh, absolutely. Um, so the the world's oldest football, say it again, you know, <laughs> it's incredible, um, was a football that was used in the court of James V and the infant Mary Queen of Scots. It was probably kicked into the eaves of Stirling's uh, Stirling Castle Palace. It was sealed up during renovation works. We have the records showing when that renovation work was undertaken, so we can pin it down to a handful of years in the early 16th century. Um, renovation works in the 1980s. The ball was uncovered, and I'm afraid that um, the individuals in the castle made a tremendous mistake. They donated it to the Smith Museum and uh, ever since I've been trying to get it back. <laughs> and of course, the Smith just politely declines every single time. But it is the world's oldest football by at least 200 years. And in actual fact, it's something of an embarrassment of riches for sporting fans of history because the world's oldest curling stone was found in Stirling as well. Yes, absolutely. The world's oldest curling stone is again 16th century. It was found in a bog next to the Borestone, which of course is the uh, made famous by Robert the Bruce's um, uh, the day one of Bannockburn, although of course it's not Robert the Bruce's uh, 
garlic stone, we should assure the listeners out there. And it's an interesting thing too, because you mention, um, in relation to Stirling Castle, a variety of intriguing historical facts, and one of which I suppose that might be most um, prevalent to, to the listeners at home would be the uh, Stirling Heads. Would you like to say something more about how they were preserved? Well, the thing is that the the Heads are this... So, start again with the, with the palace. The palace is one of the finest uh, Renaissance palaces in um, Europe. It is one of the earliest and most uh, magnificent Renaissance buildings in Britain, and it it comes at a time of peak French Catholic influence in Scotland. So Scotland has always tended to be caught between England and France, a kind of international wars. So at this point, James V, who was Mary Queen of Scots' dad, and Henry VIII's nephew, marries Mary of Guise, uh, who is obviously a French Catholic. Now, the palace is built for the royal couple, and it's built in a European tradition, so it's very elaborate, almost gaudy, you might imagine. And the the central feature of the king's inner chamber are a magnificent series of carved wooden heads, all in relief. And these are um, were highly painted. The palace at the moment features uh, reconstructions of them, and they feature a variety of individuals, so crown heads in Europe, um, Roman gods, uh, Greek gods, Roman emperors, so a variety of uh, forms and, and features, but all meant to demonstrate the taste and wealth of the Scottish uh, court. Now, after 1603, the palace, the castle, slowly but surely drops in status. It becomes um, a barracks, and the heads are taken away. We're not entirely sure of their original formation, and I'm, I'm never entirely certain how so many of them ended up being preserved and kept, but they've always been associated with the castle, and you can actually see the original heads, those that survive, the paint has gone from them and there's a specific display in the castle. And they're well worth a look, but also the um, the actual reconstructions of them in the king's inner chamber. I always, I always advise people to close their eyes and then look up and it, it feels almost like it's from Disney, it's Disneyfied. They are so bright and gaudy. And I think it's probably important to mention, perhaps for visitors outside of Scotland, uh, that the castle has recently um, undergone significant refurbishment. Yes, I mean, it's a multi-million pound uh, reconstruction that's actually, I mean, it's the work of the last 20 years. Um, the, The Great Hall, Scotland's largest Great Hall, was done first, and then the palace was done uh, next, and one floor of the palace has been completely reconstructed. So replicas of furniture, replicas of um, wall hangings, replicas of decorations, and also, um, very effectively, it's populated with uh, living characters. So people are playing uh, members of the royal court at the time and they will speak to you. And you can even see a replica of the world's oldest football. But of course, you must go and see the original in the Smith. And that's an intriguing point, actually, is because one thing that does come really through all of your book is the fact that we have all of these very, very significant historical events, but they're always tied to the individual people who made them happen. Yes, I I think um, 
history can be daunting and um, many people complain about the way they were taught history that it was the big events the broad sweep it was very alienated it was it was different it was distant to them and their personal experience so everything that happened happens because someone did it and a lot of the time it's not a Machiavellian plan it's a cock-up it's a mistake people are flawed people lie and actually, the way that history is understood now is it's written by the victor to make a, par a particular point. So, fascinatingly, one of the, the key battles around Stirling, the Battle of Sockyburn, 1488, when James III, who was a bit of a rubbish king, is killed and defeated in battle with his son, the future James IV. The official record of that says, On this day the late king fell at the field of Stirling. The king is dead, long live the king. Um, but these are individuals plotting basically a coup. They're, they're overthrowing the state. And one son, uh, James IV, replaces his dad. Of course, James IV was racked with guilt over the death of his dad. And to a large extent, Stirling benefits from that because he builds the Great Hall, the magnificent um, entrance to the castle. He helps rebuild uh, the Kirk of the Holy Rood. He invites the Greyfriars to Stirling. He re-endows uh, Cambus Kenneth Abbey and he attempts to turn St Ninian's Kirk into a collegiate chapel. So there's a wealth of royal investment in Stirling around 1500 because of James and in part because of his guilt. And with regard to that individual perspective on historical events, uh, you do raise a very interesting uh, tale of uh, Torbrex Tam in your book. Yes. <laughs> Tor Tor Torbrex Tam uh, was christened by uh, my colleague Michael uh, McGuinness in the museum because he liked the alliteration, though he's not actually from Torbrex, he's from Coney Park, so he really should be Coney Park Callum, but um, that's not as good as Torbrex Tam. So, um, Torbrex Tam illustrates the importance of local museums. In the late 19th century, uh, workers in a market garden started shoveling into a gravel mound to use the gravel for a road. They uncovered the remains of a prehistoric burial that was in a stone-lined box, a kist, and the smith took the remains and curated them. Now, uh, almost a hundred years later, in, in the 1970s, the, another excavation at the same mound, a gravel mound, a burial mound, a cairn, uh, and covered further remains. And again, these were curated in the smith. But we knew that they were prehistoric, but we did not know when, and the skull was rather degraded. Um, a local student, uh, a graduate of the School of Forensic Pathology in Dundee, um, Emily McCulloch, was looking for a, school, uh, for a, a, a summer project. And Michael suggested Torbrex Tam might be a good um, project for her. And what she was going to do was reconstruct Tam's face. Uh, and that was very good. And, and I got involved and I said, why don't we apply for some money to get this radiocarbon dated? And we applied for money for Historic Environment Scotland. They paid for the radiocarbon dating. We also got DNA analysis on, on Tam, but we don't yet have the results. Um, and this revealed that Tam is uh, Bronze Age, so buried, died roughly 3,000 years ago. But of the individuals in the, the burials, there were two Bronze Age individuals, 
young adults. There was a young child, four or five, and there was another teenager. But the teenager uh, was medieval um, and had actually died almost uh, roughly 500 years ago, 500, 600 years ago. And this was this was quite a shock because what is a, a medieval teenager doing in a pagan um, burial ground? Because at this point, everybody is Catholic. So to be buried in unconsecrated ground is quite a significant problem. This uh, this suggests that possibly a crime was uh, being covered up or perhaps it's a suicide. Um, we won't really know, but it's very intriguing. Emily did a digital reconstruction of Torbrextam, uh, and he was a, a, a quite a strong-looking young man. Um, at Michael's request, he made him modern-looking, which has always uh, caused some controversy because uh, the Emily's reconstruction of Tam has a crew cut and a kind of chiselled jaw with a designer stubble. But the attempt here was to make Tam look like us, uh, rather than to look to to distance him. He was to bring to bring his appearance closer to us to make it more visceral uh, and a and a connection to us. So, if anyone listening here, if your great 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 grandparents are from Stirling, it's very likely that Tam is your um, earliest ancestor. Well, given the sheer wealth of interesting stories and secrets that you uncover throughout Stirling, it would be remiss of me not to ask if you have a particular favourite. I, I, I certainly do. I think for me, the, um, the the difficulty is most of the interesting stories are, 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 are kind of um, heavy with tragedy. So we can talk about witch trials. We can talk about um, troops dying at Gallipoli who... Um, who volunteered to train and trained in Stirling and, and all these things. That the, the most powerful stories are um, ultimately um, imbued with negativity, um, with tragedy. I think, however, my favourite story is an account of a saint who was operating in the area. This is St Serf um, and the Earthry Estate, which is where the university is, is so that's one of the areas that the saint was operating in, and he was also operating in Tullabody, which is a little town to the east of Stirling, and the saint was around here, around 600-700. And the saint was asked to intervene in the case of sheep rustling. Now, what had happened was the thief, a man suspected of stealing the sheep, was asked, did he steal the sheep? And he said no. He was asked again, had he stolen the sheep? He protested his innocence. Nope. I hadn't stolen the sheep. The saint was brought in and the saint asked him, did you steal the sheep? And the man again protested his innocence. No, I did not steal the sheep. Now, the thing is that sheep rustling at the time was a big deal and indeed may still be a big deal in Tillybody. But the man protested his innocence. So what was the saint to do? What he got was he got the man to swear on his bishop's crozier and he said, say one more time, did you steal the sheep? Answer the question one more time. So the man put his hand on the crozier, and just as he did, the sheep bleated from his stomach, proving that he was a thief and giving us Tullybody's first miracle. 
Well, Murray, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about your new book. Thank you very much, Tom, and uh, thank you very much for taking the trouble to publish it. If you have any interest in Stirling's history, and trust me, there is a lot of history in Stirling, as you will discover from Murray's book, Digging Into Stirling's Past is available to buy from Extremist Publishing, from all good online retailers and independent booksellers worldwide. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again soon.